Welcome back to the podcast. This is the third episode in the series, and since if you listen to the previous episodes, you get the idea of what podcast is, there'd be information in the about section of this episode telling you more about what this is and where you can find information to this podcast and previous episodes if you check your podcast feed wherever you're listening to this episode. And so I thought since we're into the series now we may a lot jump in and dive right into the third episode and the third interview is with Lydia Wilkins. Lydia is a first-time author and she is a journalist. The first book is out on a Sunday, on Monday even, the 21st of November 2022. The book is a cookbook and this cookbook explores a gap in the hole in the market of what Lydia has found for cookbooks. There isn't many cookbooks out there that are accessible and inclusive to autistic people in terms of being explicit and explaining things in a clear manner. This cookbook also explores the uh, experiences autistic people find with food and the food sensitivities and it explores all the things you may need to know about cooking as an autistic person with so many recipes hundred recipes included in the book. So let's jump in. You'll jump into the interview. But before that, you can find in the about section of this episode where to buy that book. All right. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Hi, my name's Lydia. Um, <laughs> I'm a freelance journalist and I cover disability and social issues. My work has appeared in places like the Metro Insider and Refining29. Back in 2015, I was diagnosed as being autistic. That was after a three and a half year wait. It was not really a shock, not really surprising, but one of those sorts of like, oh, okay, here's some new information to get used to. I have been a qualified journalist for four, nearly five years now. My debut book is out on the 21st of November this month. It's called The Autism Friendly Cookbook and does what it says on the title. As you say, you were diagnosed uh, in recent years being autistic and it took you a few years, right? So what, what was it about you that you saw you are autistic? And what were the things about being autistic that you uh, think thought that, you know, you would... Uh, be able to make a book on uh, autism recipes? So that started out with personal independence payment. It's a personal independence payment is not accessible. It's notoriously terrible in the UK. Um, I was made aware that I qualified for personal independence payment, which is also known as PIP. Um, the thing about this is it was one of those things where I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know just how bad it would be. So I had applied and I can speak somewhat fluently, although it takes me a lot of preparation for this, as it does for a lot of autistic people. Um, so this is during the lockdown and this is as the at the first stage of the assessment they do um phone call interviews 
during the lockdown. So I was sort of like, you know, just answering questions, doing my thing. Um, so they, the personal independence payment service had come back with a basically rewrite. It was uh, it was along the lines of she can just learn to not be autistic. There was a line in it which said, but I could just learn basic skills, like how to cook. I can't just learn, I'm autistic. Um, if I could just learn, therefore I would be, you know, not on the spectrum. Um, but it was one of these things where I had gone away and I talked to people personally and people that I knew professionally as part of my job. And it started to take shape that there was this sort of kind of universal experience and not being particularly educated in terms of how to, you know, cook, bake in an accessible way, sensory issues, parents not understanding, teachers saying you're just being fussy and all that sort of thing. That was a period of about four days. And I remember sort of thinking like something needs to be done. It was just sort of one of those wonderful moments was sort of thinking this needs to be written about. On the fourth day, I think this was about maybe two o'clock in the morning. It was one of those sorts of like, I couldn't stop thinking about it and I couldn't sleep. So I remember I had a notebook out and just sort of scribbling like this sort of idea of how to like how to do a cookbook almost so I went away I pitched it to Jessica Kingsley who had an open pitch form on their website it was just sort of kind of inspired by the ridiculousness of what personal independence payment is as I said you know with autistic people starting to cook and you know being able to do stuff like that is like a thing as you were saying it's about like difference in being able to do tasks and as listed down in the questions of with autistic people, you can have the challenges of ADHD or dyspraxia with it yeah. or like other conditions. There's can be all sensory differences with eating and always things that are different from any more typical person. And you can have some of the difficult challenges in planning and as I said, planning the stuff you were trying to do and the more challenges with doing the cooking. It's um, it's if you if you look at a kind of a standard cookbook, it's actually quite difficult as well. So in terms of how I don't know, just in terms of the format of how a cookbook is written, it doesn't have. Sometimes you need to pre-prepare ingredients before actually using them. So it might not say you know like chopped tomatoes before you roast them or whatever. Obviously, it's um, it's. Ever. it's the expectation that people just automatically kind of understand and know but very often that's not the case yeah i know what i mean it's it's been quite vague in instructions and not been explicit enough you kind of hint with it with, with the education and it can be from like when you start learning to cook in school and cookery lessons yeah. that even then that there is under explicit you know vague, under uh, vague instructions are to lay you know and there can be like a challenge from in a cooking lesson for an autistic person there can be some challenges and thriving in that school environment. So did you think find that you went to also adapt things for, you know, like teachers of the cooking teachers and people helping autistic people educate them in cooking to help them understand how to teach make them uh, um do better? <laughs> it, uh, that that needed to happen anyway. So yes. during the during the lockdowns in the UK, I was involved with an organisation that would teach um, autistic individuals and their parents, very often teachers, would come along. One of the presentations that I had to deliver was around autism and food 
And it kind of, it blew my mind and not in a good way, in the sense of um, the very often strategies when it comes to food and being on the spectrum are actually quite easy to implement rather than sort of, we have this idea around kind of food culture that we must finish everything on our plate. And if you don't, you are just fussy. Why is it, for example, that it's apparently a revelation effectively to say, okay, here's something, why don't you just serve it in a different format? Or the amount of individuals who didn't know about the physical adaptations was really quite interesting. If you have issues with motor skills, for example, it may mean that, you know, cutting up food can be quite difficult. So why is it that we don't have, we don't talk about things such as weighted cutlery or if you don't like your food touching each other, why can't you have a meal separator? No one knew about it. It was quite scary, to be honest. And it was one of those things where I remember sort of thinking there just needs to be like one resource whether this is just in one place. So in terms of the, when writing the book, it was imperative that that would happen. So in the first, there's two parts to the book. So the second part is recipes. There's a hundred recipes in this, but the first part is kind of like for parents, teachers, carers, that sort of thing. So to say what sensory issues are, how to adapt, physical adaptations, um, there's also a chapter where autistic individuals, um, where they, they speak for themselves. Very often, we think in terms of quite sort of like medical terms. So when people say, go away and read this, why is it that we so very often rely on what a doctor is telling us in terms of how our experience is? I wanted the autistic people to be allowed to actually speak for themselves rather than being spoken over. Yeah, I guess you really found like a gap in the area of, uh, of autistic book communication, uh, autistic uh, cooking information and how to teach people on the experience autistic people have with food. As you were hinting there, there's a lot of misunderstanding and the lack of wanting to listen to autistic people, you know, about how they experience food. And as you were hinting that sometimes they can be like patronising with the, the medical mm-hmm. model and all that. And the stuff of like, you know, not actually addressing and learning from autistic people. And I can tell with your book, you wanted to uh, listen to autistic people about the experiences with food and they get a wider way of listening to the community about this. Well, it's dehumanising. And also, if you, from a journalistic standpoint, I would argue that if you don't listen to the subject of the story, you're not doing your job. So just as a kind of idea... I shouldn't be criticising my profession, but I will. So very often we have kind of like tragedy stories that we run. We shouldn't be running it. It's very often like, oh, I'm the parent of this particular child and that child is such a tragedy. Poor me, pity them type of thing. Or it says about kind of like, if you're the the... The person at the centre of the story is the person that you should be speaking to, so the disabled person themselves. Unless, of course, there's restrictions in place, such as when it comes to the law. You shouldn't really be talking to, like, 
adults or like the carers or the teachers unless it's strictly relevant it's so very often not when it comes to individuals who are on the spectrum I don't understand why there just seems to be kind of like this convention where we don't talk to the people actually involved it's quite dehumanizing it's as a as an autistic person myself it's I find this so very often so even if I if I was just to go to the dentist for example I so I always have someone with me because of previous experiences where when I've been by myself I've actually been not treated particularly well so the medical professionals will actually talk to the person who's with me they won't talk to me even if I'm in the dental chair it's just it's absurd and when it's imperative that we actually start telling the actual story rather than just sort of the fringe sort of like the tragedy bit yeah, this is a common theme that I've been finding from the interviews of people felt that they not listened to or like when autism and disability is described in the media that like mm-hmm. if the uh, disabled people asked, it's often asked the last. And I can tell that with your journalism, you're trying to put disability and the people you address and I'm talking about represent a new work trying to put them out of line and light to give them that platform to speak and represent yourself. And I can tell yeah. that by, by talking to different people for, you know, your research for the book, you have done just that. Well, it's sort of, it's the right thing to do. It just sort of, it kind of flew my mind, really. It's so, as an example, prior, so prior to the pandemic, I was flying by myself for the first time. I was dropped off by, this is, I promise this is relevant. I was dropped off at the airport by my mother and we had gone to the assistance desk because I had never flown by myself and they said, come to the assistance desk, we will help you. I had gone up to the desk and I said, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm on the autistic spectrum, I need help with my flight today. It's the first time I've flown. And I will never forget this, the woman in charge of this, she automatically, as soon as I said, I'm autistic. I and I um I did I I sorry I'm so sorry. Right. As soon as said, as soon as I said I'm autistic, I'm a disabled person, I need help, she automatically turned to my mum, who was stood there, and said to my mother, What access needs does your daughter need help with? To which my mum was sort of a little bit taken aback, to which she uh, God bless her for saying this, she turned around and said, Well, I don't know. Why didn't you ask her? Like it's a sort of we if you're if you're wishing to be helpful in any kind of way, why don't you ask the disabled individuals what they need for help with rather than just assuming? It's sort of like um we are we have this sort of preconceived notion of what this is. It's quite one dimensional. Yeah, and as I said, it can be quite painful and quick. Cringing if you've yeah. seen that happen and being like absolutely feeling that experience first person. And with that, you know, it's like autistic people can feel a bit more exhausted and feel like exhausted enough by these social interactions, but then having to advocate and try to correct all these things. So I guess as a journalist, the miss, you know, like not, not really representing things as it should, I guess. You find the criteria then, how uh, like you've been able to learn about all the different uh, dehumanizing ways of not addressing the pe- people at first. 
it can be tiring, but it's one of those things that motivates me to try and do better. It's that I'm so sorry. That sounded so cheesy saying that, but it, it's it's one of those things where um, how am I going to put this? Um, it's I freelance out of choice because as much as I love my industry, it is so very ableist it's so very tokenistic it's one of the key values that i have that i will not be a tick box i will not deal with organizations that treat people this way i will make my own space and it's sort of i think that it's sort of healthier in that way to sort of in the sense of sort of rather than or we talk so much about inclusion but this is one of the most exclusive professions and added to that, very often, in editors, for example, very often they do not take criticism particularly well. It's I've been told off for being apparently too judgmental on occasion, just for effectively owning the space that I'm in. We need to be doing better by disabled journalists. We need to be doing better in terms of how we cover the topic of disability and or neurodiversity. It shouldn't be... Individuals have been so nice about this book, even though it's not out yet at the time that I'm talking to you. They've been so nice in the sense that they have said, this is great because this actually works to us. Well, isn't that the job that you're supposed to do in the sense of if you write it, you make it work for someone, as that's the purpose of the... They really can tell that, you know, as I said, you know, like, you can see that... It should be already working and I guess, you know, your motivation comes from it's like there's so much not being done in this area that you're meant to be able to step up and start being able to make the change to be able to see disability reporting that's positive and that's led by disabled voices and reporting from things how you think they should be. It's, I must confess, I did have a slightly emotional moment recently. Um, so my friend has two very small children. So it's, I was talking on the phone to her and her little boy came in and said he's on, he's on the autistic spectrum as well, but he is infinitely curious and he is so clever, he's so wonderful. He will go very far in his life. Um, but all I could just hear on the other end going, Mummy, what's a journalist? And then uh, it's, I remember after this phone call, she'd be saying, Oh, yeah, my son was talking about you the other day. He's so interested. You've inspired him. That was just so absolutely wonderful. But in the sense of sort of, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be in the sense of inspiring as sort of like the one off. This should yes. just be standard. It should just be standard, just as sort of like, you know, here we are, here we are in the workplace, we're here to do a job. Yeah, I mean, it should really have that healthy representation, you know, mm-hmm. in the career field and that every because, you know, there's only like a few journalists with, uh, who are disabled that many people can name and like I at all because there's, as you say, it's a lot of underrepresentation in the mainstream media and as you say, there's uh, not many people in the editing rooms, newsrooms that are disabled. And that's one thing that you're like, kind of motivated to see that representation, but equally find some frustration with. Going back to some of the stuff in the book, so you were talking to the many disabled uh, uh, autistic 
people uh, about the recipes. Tell us, tell me about some of the recipes that you've been you've been able to collate for the book and who with. Okay, so the book is divided, and um, the recipe section is divided into four. So it has breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then miscellaneous recipes. Um, the miscellaneous recipes is basically, I like cake. It wouldn't have been my book if there wasn't a section for kind of like cake-based thing. It started out, out of the 100 recipes, 30 of those are from other autistic individuals. Um, we have people like the YouTuber Yo Sam Sam, we have Sienna Castellan, uh, we have Laura James and other names such as that. In terms of, so in the way the recipes are written, there are things, so there's um, a key for dietary and sensory needs, which is illustrated. So we had, I'm trying not to say mm, as I'm talking to you, um, we, had, we had Emily from 21 Sensory do the illustrations. So there is an illustrated key um, for the. I'm so sorry. I had I had COVID right. in March, and I have this. I had I have brain fog sometimes, and sometimes words get stuck. She did the so the sensory needs and the kind of like dietary needs. So there's a key for that. There's an energy metric, so you can see how much energy will be lost. There's a skills key, so. If you are kind of like a very sort of, you just want a very sort of basic meal, that's indicated quite quickly on. When it comes to the recipe, it has um, a pre-preparation section. So if you have executive functioning issues, that means that you can line up the ingredients first rather than, you know, having to sort of like on the whim sort of go, oh, I need to cut this, but then like, you know, all this other stuff is going on and I feel overwhelmed. The language I've tried to keep as simple as possible, It in terms of if there's a term that's a, kind of like a cookery technique, there is a glossary of cooking terms. So if you don't know what a particular technique is, I've tried to write that out. At, on the bottom of most of the recipes, there's also a section for expanding your repertoire. So if you want to add something or if you have like different sensory needs, there's something there just so you can change it up. Oh, sounds very excellent with having the keys and the, uh, you know, very visible aspects of it and easy to navigate with the uh, guilt and all stuff like that and easy to understand terms. And I think that would make it like easy and accessible for myself and something I would love to try to cook with as I think sometimes, you know, like the kitchen can be super stressful for going with and things, you know, like it'd be quite good to find some good recipes to add into my repertoire and, you know, like flex and stuff that I would cook myself. Well, it's one of those things where if you, at the end of the day, you obviously haven't, your energy levels are depleted and you just want something quickly, in a conventional cookbook, it's quite difficult to pick up what you can judge as being quite quick and easy. You sometimes there have been multiple occasions where I thought, "Oh, that's quite simple to do. I know exactly how to do that," and it becomes so overly complicated, and then something like you know gets burnt or you know that kind of thing. It needed to be quite sort of easy to access in the sense of sort of oh okay you know exactly what you're looking for the information needed to be just categorized just that little bit extra better in the way that it was being done that didn't quite make sense I'm so sorry 
but just in the in the sense of sort of when having cooked previously it's something that's that privately I found quite off-putting to be totally honest about this why would you get involved in something if you can't see how accessible it is to you you just wouldn't because yeah that would be quite off-putting thing and if you like can't see what skills and what time you know and how much energy that would take out when you like trying to start to make a meal in the evening that can be quite stressful if you haven't been able to yeah. plan out a certain time and or time manage and organise. If you got that book in front of you, like it can take a lot of that time away from you. Like it makes it a lot easier to navigate and probably takes a lot quicker time. And I guess with yourself, with having long COVID, with having the help for certain keys of the energy and like seeing how much energy that can take up, I guess can be very helpful for yourself then. I would like to hope so. Um yeah. <laughs> at the at the point that I'm talking to you, there is, as far as I know, there's only two individuals who've actually sat down and read it cover to cover. Um, most people who I say this in the nicest way possible, most people who I have either given a copy to or have just they've either flipped through it or they've looked through it to see if they're in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, the bulk of the recipes have a story connected to them. Because a lot of it comes from my family and family background. And it could even just be things such as, so there's a particular recipe in the book where prior to the pandemic, each Sunday, my family would all get together and we'd all go out to the pub nearby where we live for nachos because they did a particularly wonderful nachos and it was a good way to socialise it's accessible to me and to everybody else. But it was one of those things where I was sort of like, okay, here's a book. And sort of like everyone I knew had just sort of like opened it up. They didn't quite get the majority of the individuals so far what I was trying to do. They were just looking for themselves. Um, There was actually somebody who rang me up who I really hope he doesn't listen to this. If he does, I shall laugh until the end of eternity. He rang me up. And he hadn't quite realised that I'd put him in the acknowledgements because he'd been kind about the book while writing it. To which he said, why the am I in this book? Like, why on earth would you do that? You've written that to get your own back on me. It's just sort of like, yeah, everyone's been really nice about this, but it has been really amusing to me. I hope it does some good. Yeah, thing is, it does seem like a really positive idea. I mean, I really like when I was reading that book about the book, you know, up on the email you sent to me about it. Yeah. I was thinking, wow, this sounds like something really good because I haven't come across a book like that before. And as you're saying, you know, with the uh, memories you have, the recipes and the stories you tell, that's thing with food, you know, like it's more than just, you know, a meal or something you eat. It's like a lot of memories come with it and emotion and feelings. Yeah, it's... I must get, I like what you say, I think you used the term memories there, I like what you say about that, so there's two things, so my wonderful mentor, he died just at the, so in terms of the train of events, um, I had sort of started with the personal dependence payment staff, he had died quite 
suddenly in September 2020, um, which was around the same sort of time that I got the letters saying you can just learn how to cook. He was an absolutely wonderful human being. The last phone call I had had was where I was in conversation for another book to Ghostwrite. He was so excited. It was like a kid in a sweet shop. He got very excited very quickly down the phone from the US going, this is how you write it and this is how, how you should interview and these are the questions you should ask. At the end of this phone call, he said this thing and it will stay for me, it will stay with me until the day I die. He said, if you ever sign a contract, send it to me. Uh, by that, it's it's quite a powerful act to have to have faith in someone. It's I always read kind of book writing as what proper journalists do. I never thought I would write a book. So he is a part of the book. He is a part of the dedication. It would have never have happened if he hadn't have said that. It's also so at the back of the book there is an illustration. I know his daughter. She is an absolutely wonderful person. I value her a lot. In the family, they describe themselves. They had an in-house joke where they describe themselves as particular animals. So there is an illustration that was just for the family at the back of the book to end it. It's also. It, and sort of while I was writing this as well, um, my great grandmother died quite suddenly as well. I absolutely adored her. She was a brilliant storyteller. She was a wonderful, funny woman, and I miss her still. But it was one of those things where it was I had to sort of. It sounds really obnoxious saying this out loud. I had to, in some way, I just had to put her into the book. So she. We what we used to do was to smuggle in boxes of Maltesers to her in her care to her care home at Christmas time as her Christmas gift. So she by the end she just had this she had a bedside cabinet and the bottom drawer was where she kept all her kind of like minty treats. It's also the smell of lavender that I associated with her. She was always kind of um she was very sort of must have your nails done and the wig perfectly coughed and all that kind of thing. I somehow, I forget what it was. I think I put her in as some sort of like cake and put the story connected to her. It's, it's food is community and food very often it evokes, people talk about food and good times and how they've come together through community effectively. That was important. It was an important element to put in the book. Even if the, this was just like, you know, it will end up on like, you know, some dusty library shelf somewhere. But it was important to put that in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's that's a lovely, you know, tribute to them, you know, because it's, you know, like as I say, this project has been just so much more than just publishing a book, you know, because it's something that means a lot to you and it's been, yeah. I guess, something you've always been a part of you and been to do all along and again. So as I said, you know, like you didn't expect yourself to write a book, but you found yourself doing it and you thought it was only for proper journalists. But I guess you, I think you are a proper journalist and, you know, there's, (laughs) yeah, I thought I, you know, compliment you because, yeah, there's some, something, you know, like good to do and, you know, with yourself here and uh, you found a good idea. I guess, you know, like there was an element of imposter syndrome about that as well. Um, okay, I should clarify this. Um, so my mother partly knew that I was on the autistic spectrum. As a, I was a very lonely teenager. I was diagnosed um, when I was 
two months shy of turning 16. Um, but prior to that, so as a, I think a lot of autistic people do this, where they spend a lot of time in the school library, when there's kind of, um, you know, when there's like break time or lunch time and it's sort of unscheduled social activity and you have no idea what to do. Um, so my tactic was always to spend time in the library at both of the secondary schools I attended and then later at college. Um, so it was kind of in the library that I found kind of like crime journalism in the sense of sort of being introduced to what that was as a format. I remember reading, actually, tell you what, I'm not going to name check these people because these people, these are people that I know. Um, one of them doesn't need the ego boost and they would get very, they would be like really quite weirded out. But I read a lot of people. I read their work and I went around and looking for their work. And it was always sort of like, there's the stereotype of kind of like what a proper journalist is in the sense of, oh, it must be news and it must be quite like, you know, the typewriter and all that sort of thing. It was just sort of, it was really quite strange. So I'm actually sat at my friend's house. I had actually read about her a decade prior to meeting her. It was really quite weird and coincidental how we got to meet. And then all these sorts of like other people that I'd read about as a child. And it was it was sort of quite a strange sort of reckoning, sort of thinking these are actually people. They're not just the product of a book that I read like, you know, however many years ago. They are the proper journalists in the sense of sort of like they've done this job for like 30, 40 years. They have a track record of reporting and all that sort of thing. So it's always sort of weird sort of if I have to go to an event or something, I'm they're always quite a lot taller than I am. So it's always sort of like, hi, how are you? I'm just like this tiny person, quite literally so, because you're a lot taller than me yeah. and having to always look up. <laughs> yeah, I think even though that's a, like it's like a cheesy or corny thing, it's like belief. You went went to do something, you know, like and believing in yourself to, to try to do something, and then you can start there. You get to end up meeting these people in uh, my head in the industry, and like get yourself into the, the industry of journalism, and I guess find that in, inside motivation. Sure, really, what to say to that? To be honest, it's sort of it's been something that I've had to kind of learn always, and sort of having to relearn. Yeah. Um, it, when I was in education, I did not have a particularly good time of it. So I remember many teachers telling me, "Oh, you can't be a journalist; just go to university. You can't be a journalist because you're autistic and all that sort of thing." So in the sense of sort of like having done my A-levels and all that sort of thing, it was sort of like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do and to go and train as that. But in terms of the kind of like, you know, the thing is sort of where you only have like a limited expectation because generally speaking, the outlook for us is not exactly great in some respects. Mm. So in the sense of sort of going, oh, I've trained to be a journo now. I don't quite know what to do next because the expectation was sort of never there to reach that point in the first place. It's been quite weird sort of having to kind of like learn and sort of relearn how not to be internally ableist to myself has been quite a... It messes with my brain. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand how you would have been slow to uh, respond to our question and... I'd say it's like the thing that 
and think that percentage people from get autistic and disabled people getting into these industries and into the field of birthing might have wanted to try if you know like they've been encouraged to like by like teachers and parents and at a young age then if that expectation was there when they were younger then you might feel encouraged and they're not ableism in society and what knocks down is a barrier it's also been such as I always sometimes I lecture students and sometimes I talk to individuals who want to go freelance I always try to stress that words have an impact. So you may be reporting, but it is the way in which you choose to report that has an impact for better or for worse. Not, and it doesn't necessarily have to be on a big scale either. I will never forget, and I still remember her name. Um, there was a particular English teacher who taught at one of the secondary schools I was at. I, so... Do you remember when The Book Thief came out? Um, can't remember. I had gone to see the film and I wanted to read the book afterwards. Um, you should always read the book first before you see the film. But it's quite, I think it's something like 600 pages long. It's quite a big, chunky text. But that sort of thing is, I would just read that sort of thing quite regularly. Chunky books for sort of like, you know, lonely child goes to a library, needs a big book to keep them going all the time. Words have an impact on sometimes a dramatic scale, but a very small scale as well. Frankly, never forget her for this quite sort of backhanded compliment, I guess. At that time, I'd seen it for my birthday and I wanted to read the book. It's It's been a while since I've read it, but I will never forget. Um, so I'd gone to check the book out in the school's library and she, and she said this thing where she said, oh, are you, it was something like, are you sure that this is for you? This is quite a heavy going complex book. She wouldn't, arguably, I don't think she would have said that to anyone else off the basis of my neurology. It was really quite patronising, really quite condescending. I That's the sort of thing, at the time I was reading sort of 600 pages, like a week type thing, because I was a very lonely teenager. I would spend most of my break time, lunch time in school library among books. That's where I found sort of crime journalists and all that sort of thing. That's how I knew what I wanted to do. That was, it was a very heavy influence. But it was one of those things that influenced me for a long time in the sense of sort of, it, it was just a tiny sort of off-the-cuff remark, but it was so utterly, it, it was indicative of an attitude already there in the sense of sort of people who so often see the term disabled and they think, oh, well, you know, they're not going to achieve anything, let's write them off. That's just on a small scale. When it comes to reporting, it's the way in which we tell stories that we should be thinking about. Yeah, I think as you were saying, these small moments, these small words can have massive impact and can really stick in the mind of neurodivergent person with autistic people can memorise this information and it can have a lasting effect. And as I said, it's like a micro-question, but it does mean something quite big. It is. It Things like that are microaggressions. I would argue. I will never forget the teacher who said, if, when I was at college, for example, there was a, I really, I'm not a fan of the term in this context, 
there was a piece that we were looking at again as part of the English class where it described someone as being Aspergerish. So Asperger syndrome as a diagnosis is still used in some territories, but there's also the stereotype that comes with that term in the sense of being cold and unfeeling. Now, Asperger syndrome is technically my diagnosis, but I was diagnosed the down at the time when it was just going out of the diagnostic manual. But the teacher turned around and said, oh, have you ever met someone with, someone with Asperger syndrome? They're a bit cold and a bit weird. Mm. So, yeah, um, I wrote a complaint letter and I took that to the college afterwards just because it's so sort of, that's so indicative of attitudes and it's quite outdated as well. Yeah. In terms of, it's just sort of stereotypes like that are not acceptable. Don't get me wrong, newspapers are generally chronically underfunded. There's not a lot of funding, but we can still be doing better than that. I really detest it when there are journalists that I talk to sometimes and they say things like, oh, but we're so afraid of getting it wrong. I don't know what to say about such and such an issue lest I be attacked for it. Well, isn't the whole point of this profession to ask questions so that you can learn how to do better? So it's things like, in terms of how people may use language, I might describe myself differently to how you might describe yourself. So therefore, surely you should be asking what the individual prefers as a general overall term. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying, you know, it's important to listen to the wider community and our single voice. As we were saying about when you was in college, there's an issue with talking about autism and disability as if, like, there's not... So there's not someone in the room with a disability or who's autistic. And so that's a big impact and something telling within society that we should be talking about uh, disability and autism like there could be somebody in, in that room with it because, you know, we can't see disability, can't see autism, disability, but as you were saying, and then that has an impact and as you say, the legalist stereotype, wrongful to use and it's everything. Technology, same language, and you know, I would have felt you know, mostly taken back by that in the same way as you did. It's, um, I don't quite know what to say here. It's, I on occasion, I have been taken aback. If you're a teenager, if you're a child, you should not have to be having to deal with this. It should be incumbent on the adults to have a safe space in education. But I think it would be naive to say that that is the case. It's very often not. It's, uh, if there is any sort of behaviour like that now, as I've grown older, I have far less tolerance, to be totally honest. As an example, there is a former editor. I didn't work with this particular individual for that very long. They were awful and it was one of the worst experiences I've ever had, frankly. I, do, I don't communicate with this person. Um, so on all kind of social media platforms, I have this person blocked. I have people that work for this person also blocked, so he can't contact me. I don't have his phone number. And that's that. It just sort of sometimes in terms of, I keep coming back to this idea of space. This is my space. And frankly, ableist influences are not allowed in my space for my peace of mind. I want a peaceful life. Yeah, I can tell that, you know, by, I guess, why you chose in freelance journalism to be able to choose your own autonomy and can control you, how, how you 
in the spaces you work and make sure that when you work, you know, you're working with like an environment where you feel safe and comfortable to not be uh, kind of discriminated against and to be experiencing any ableism towards yourself. Well, it's that thing of if you have, if you are in any sort of creative space, you need the space to create. I cannot be effective and I cannot be productive in a space that does not welcome me. I'd argue that's the same for all disabled individuals, whatever their access requirements are it tends to be like a lot of uh, artistic and it would like and people to end up in a creative space it's us to have like the spells and talents that needs to be in that in that space and as you say, you're not in the future, at least when to see more, than to be able to listen to all his voices. And as you were saying, that sometimes people are so worried about getting it wrong. And if we had more disabled journalists, editors, and more diversity in the newsrooms, then we could see more representation that listens to the disabled voices and that doesn't manage to get it wrong and gets away to all the first time. Exactly. It's I must confess having it's how am I gonna put this? So I'm having my book launch not long after I'm talking to you. But it's one of those things where I have there's a friend of mine and she in the nicest way possible she doesn't always get disability right. And it's sort of, in the sense, to sort of, she has this idea that disabled individuals seem to be like some other completely different animal and like they are not human beings and all that sort of thing. I've had, and it's partly because she doesn't come across disabled individuals that very often. She's come across me, but I'm, I have uh, what I refer to as bit as disability privilege because of the fact that I can talk semi-fluently I sometimes I have to script and I plan a lot I come across as quote-unquote normal although people seem to when they find out sometimes people get scared of me it's sort of like oh autism ah big scary thing okay but it's one of those things where I sometimes think that it comes from quite ignorant attitudes how can a place be inclusive if they've not come across a disabled person it's not right by any means and it's a sort of self-fulfilling cycle I'm saying for your friend you know it's important that you know if you're in the field of journalism a month to end up talking about disabled people you know it's important to be able to listen to disabled people and actually make that research or understanding of how to ethically represent disabled people that looks at how to to uh, make sure that they uh, feel included and not seen like another person and to, to everybody yeah i think it's also Culturally, we don't have a culture in the UK and arguably the Western world that listens particularly well. We're quite fast-paced due to technology. In terms of listening, it's I just want to clarify. So I have been working with my friend to sort of familiarise her in what's acceptable and what's yeah. not. But it's also, I think it also kind of works both ways. I had, when writing the book, I had a bit of a rude awakening where I'm, um, if I was about to interview someone, I would always ask what their access needs were. So if they needed, they could write answers. It could be a Zoom call. It could be a phone call. It could be anything. That's just sort of, I thought that was quite basic, to be honest. And there was a lovely woman who wrote back to me and she said, but you've made me cry by asking this. Nobody's ever asked me that before, which was sort of quite shocking. Like, it's it's very basic it's just sort of I'm trying to listen but 
I think it also works sort of interpersonally as well. So while writing, there were particular points where privately I was sort of being attacked over this. So individuals who I won't name, they were they would say that they wanted to be interviewed for the book and then they would just end up being quite rude on a Zoom call. They didn't want to be interviewed, they just wanted to be rude. Um, I've had people sending me quite crappy email messages where they've not even read the book and they've just said, oh, like, blah, 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 and all that sort of thing. In terms of listening, it's a two-way thing. I'm not saying I'm perfect, nobody is, but we can always be learning. I could, could agree totally, as said to everything and that exactly that. But, like, going back to some of the stuff you had done in the book, you know, and, you know, like, some of the quotes issues you know with all autistic people I've written down past about but what what's the relationship you've been able to understand about if people who are autistic for challenges on does your book represent any like autistic people's negative experiences with food? There was a myriad of experiences to be honest there was a lot which didn't surprise me yeah um, it's a uh, so from the from the get-go it was important because it research has started to indicate in terms of autism and eating disorders it was important that there was resources at the back of the book for this reason when it came to interviewing individuals I would ask about their experiences if they wanted to talk about that that was fine if they didn't okay there was very often quite a universal shape to it almost so a lot of individuals they would talk about how they had been bullied in education particularly when it came to learning how to cook they had been discriminated against by their teachers other experiences very often were parents didn't understand and the word fussy would come up a lot fussy to therefore we must force this food on this child to eat it and then we wonder why um children grow up to be adults with quite complicated relationships with food there were individuals who had eating disorders or who were receiving treatment at the time they are interviewed in the book if that was particularly important no one's ever asked me this question before it just it was important to have a range of different experiences so we have sensory processing disorder we have different things when it comes to there were individuals who had a cross-section of needs so we often had things such as ADHD and that kind of thing so I in to run in tandem with the book I was actually running a podcast to kind of curate the separate conversations only because this is the autism friendly cookbook I can't put every single conversation and every experience that has an intersection in there yeah I can imagine I thought you know it would be a good question to ask you because just to get a sense of what type of issues you talked about in the book and addressed and discussed within the interviews. I thought I asked about like some of the wider experiences that autistic people face around food and it seems like your book does give a wide variety and a good image of what the autistic experience and relationship with, with food is. Don't get me wrong, I wish that it had been more diverse, but there had been events that played out at the end of last year. I wish I had done better on diversity grounds, but in terms of editing, and I was frankly not 
really well. I was not in a good place at the time of writing. It's, I wish I had done better in that sense. It's one of those things when you're writing books and a predicted, you end up being like a more well, like the toughest critique of it. You probably know it's things like, oh, you should have, you went to do this and that. And then quite hard to like fit it all into a book and fit all the ideas you want to say in the book. Of course, like there'd be some areas that you wouldn't be able to add in or represent that you would have missed her. Which is why I have pitched the follow-up to the publisher, just because there was just so much material that I did not get to use, and I think it should have a place. (laughs) I don't know if they'll pick it up. I hope they do. There could be a second part two to this. I have no idea. (laughs) I hope so. Great idea. Now, since you finished the book, I guess you've some with ideas to go with it. Why, thank you. Um, it's uh, If they do, I should know next month. I hope they do. I'd quite like to write another book. It's it's sort of weirdly addictive, although that they are terrible for making money out of. <laughs> it's just sort of one of those things among sort of the freelance assignments and interviews and things are sort of like, oh, look, here's a book I just happened to write. Everyone needs a pandemic project. Yeah, definitely. Everyone needs like a project and I'm releasing, I guess. Because, like, something else, artistic and discussing artistic experience of food, I guess then it might become, like, your own, like, a focused interest within yourself starting this book and something you enjoyed researching and producing. There was a lot of enjoyment. It's also, if you write about food, it's a good excuse to go and eat food, I find. <laughs> Just, it was also quite strange. So, in the book, there's a chef that, not a chef sorry there's an individual who owns a business called community chef which is based quite near, near to where i live it was really it's been really quite strange in the nicest way possible to it's sort of in terms of connection writing this has brought back people that i haven't spoken to for many many years robin the who owns community chef actually taught me when i was at secondary school nearly a decade ago and it was so weird. So the in lockdown, we had a cooking class on Zoom with the charity that used to support me. I didn't remember his organisation, but I remembered him. So it was really quite weird. Suddenly this person pops up on my Zoom screen and goes, I know you, where do I know you from? We were, so he was a wonderful interviewee for the book. He taught me a lot. I attended his classes. One of the most wonderful things happened in January. So my, the first teacher who kind of taught me to love language and history and all that sort of thing, she taught me how to write. I haven't, she hasn't taught me for nearly 20 odd years, right? She found me because she had seen about the book in a magazine it was just the most utterly one most wonderful thing. She contacted me via Facebook. I don't quite know how, because my account is on the highest privacy settings that you can do so. But she found me just to say that she was so pleased. It was just so absolutely wonderful. Oh, well, I guess I must have felt amazing to be able to have this book turn into a way of finding old connections, finding a bit from your past life coming back. It was it was slightly spooky, I will admit that, but it was just so absolutely wonderful in the sense of sort of, I was always quite an 
I was a very quiet, very sort of loner type student all the time. I don't think in I don't think any of my teachers would have thought, oh, she'd go and write a book and she'll actually turn out to be a writer. There wasn't particularly that many expectations. There wasn't exactly high hopes from a lot of people who taught me. But it was just so wonderful, and I'm very excited to actually meet her after all this time. The last time I saw her was about 10 years ago. She taught me nearly 20. I guess you must have been proud to see you be, like, opening up a magazine and seeing your book advertising for the students you taught, publishing their own book. I will have to ask her. It is the sort of, she, I know that she will remember me basically as a teeny tiny child who had a quite a lot of massive curves to be honest it's all up today but just the sort of yeah it's been really quite weird and sort of now it's at the point of looking to the future and thinking okay what next who knows it seems like you've got a lot of things ideas for what could come next one thing i tend to ask you know on the podcast is what things could be able able to be done to change for the better for yourself on neurodivergent people? That is a big question. I don't have all the answers. One of the things that needs to change, particularly in the UK, is in terms of the ingrained societal attitudes. I recently read Crippled, which is a brilliant book by the Guardian columnist Frances Bryan. She talks about how there's this catch-22 attitude where, typically speaking, disabled individuals, autistic people count legally as being disabled they are counted as in terms of statistics and reporting we have this quite scaremonger type attitude we all hear the stereotypes about the benefits scrounger for example and yet with that comes the oh the benefits scrounger needs their benefits taken off them in order to get into work how can you first of all that's not right at all but secondly, the workplace is so often inaccessible. So how on earth can you put people into employment? It's just the catch-22 ridiculousness of that attitude is sort of, that needs to be undone. We need conversations around benefits and supporting without the, frankly, idiocy of the government currently. For example, I don't, why is it that Previously, individuals who have no understanding whatsoever of what the service is, why are they in charge of it if they don't understand? PIP, which is personal independence payment, is not means tested. It shouldn't be. It should remain not means tested. And yet, so very often, government ministers have said, oh, it's to do with work. No, it's not. It's to do with the cost of disability, which are substantial. Living in the UK, for example, just each month. Look at what Scope says. And finally, in terms of healthcare, we need to actually start having a conversation. If you look at the terrible stories, such as that of Connor Sparrowborg, his mum wrote a brilliant book called Justice for Laughing Boy. That is a damning indictment of what is wrong. Autism, so very often it crosses over with things such as learning disabilities. If you look at the lifespan for this particular group of individuals, that's shocking. It shouldn't be that way in 2022. There needs to be actually something done about this and not just the ridiculous kind of like empty promises of going, oh, we'll write a paper, we'll write a white paper, but we'll do nothing about it. We'll do nothing about this when it comes to the prison service. We'll do nothing about it when it comes to the NHS. We'll just forget about it because it's not important. 
it should be. Yeah, I'd assume there's some harm and stuff over the cost of living prices and over that, mm-hmm. the cost of disability claims for that. It's kind of like a growing issue that does need to be addressed, you know, because it's all getting to breaking point now, a problem and it's growing when I want to ask, is there anything else you wanted to say in the interview? Because it seems like we covered a lot of ground for Martin Knoya listed for the questions. I think that's everything. It's been wonderful to talk to you. The book is out on next Monday. That's amazing. Thank you for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day. You can find me anywhere on Instagram and Twitter, for example. My handle is journo underscore Lydia. I'm also writing over on Substack, which is lydiawilkins.substack.com. Otherwise, you can just Google me. The book is out everywhere. It, it's available on places such as Amazon for worldwide deliveries. It's You can get it via Barnes & Noble if you're in the States, Waterstones, WH Smith, bookshop.org. It's available now. Thank you, and thanks for coming on the podcast. And thank you to Lydia Wilkins for coming on this podcast. The next interview we'll hear comes out next Sunday on the 27th of November, 2022. Have this in your diary. It's with uh, Matilda Barrowman and we're going to be chatting on things, autism, cerebral palsy, the neurodivergent story and journey and about ableism and representation of autism, cerebral palsy and disability rider in the media. And as I said, thank you for Lydia Wilkins for being our guest. If you check the About Sex of this podcast, as, as I said earlier, on in the introduction, you can find a link to where you can purchase that book and follow Lydia Wilkins. Thanks you for tuning in. Please remember to rate, subscribe, share this podcast, give positive reviews and let people know about it. The more people listening to this and finding this podcast will be amazing to let us grow and making sure that many neurodivergent voices and many holistic people, neurotypical people, can hear these conversations as these conversations are vital and movie to be heard. And if you got anything to uh, communicate to the podcast, questions and ideas, email at neurocast at uh, arrowcreo.com. And that's arrowcreo, spelled A-A-R-O-C-R-E-O dot com. And if you got in, find information about the podcast, that's the website www.arrowcreo.com Thanks for tuning in. Coming this December on the podcast, you'll be hearing podcast interviews with Rosemary Rittens, Alison Arby, and you're going to have a Lola Young and a Christmas special that will debut on Christmas Day or for a Christmas special of the podcast. And there will be an episode of the podcast with... Uh, Sarah Jane Harvey debuting on New Year's Day. The podcast won't stop and have a break over the Christmas season. Until next time, thank you.